Welcome to the West Side Audio Message Podcast. We hope you enjoy today's message. And if you're looking for more ways to connect with West Side Assembly of God, feel free to check us out at www.westsideag.org. You'll find all the information about our service times, upcoming events, and opportunities for you to plug in and get connected with West Side Assembly of God. Additionally, you'll find a complete online archive of all of the previous and current messages absolutely free of charge. We hope you are encouraged by this week's message, and thanks again for downloading the West Side Audio Message Podcast. We're going to talk a little bit about a couple we've already met called Aquila and Priscilla. And it says in the 18th verse of the 18th chapter, Paul stayed on in Corinth, that's where we left him last time, for some time, then he left the brothers and sisters and sailed for Syria, accompanied by Priscilla and Aquila. Before he sailed, he had his hair cut off at Sincrea because of a vow he had taken. They arrived at Ephesus, where Paul left Priscilla and Aquila. He himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews, and when they asked him to spend more time with them, he declined, but he left. As he left, he promised, I will come back if it is God's will. I find a lot of meaty stuff in there that I'm not going to spend as much time on as maybe they will in the Sunday school class that picks up this theme. Then he set sail from Ephesus, and when he had landed at Caesarea, he went up to Jerusalem and greeted the church and went down to Antioch. Now, the reason I, I read this little introductory thing is because there's a couple of nuggets in there I find very fascinating. And it's almost an interesting side note in this uh, short passage, deserving of a brief comment, that notice Paul met Aquila and Priscilla when he went to Corinth. Aquila and Priscilla were <clears throat> chased out of Rome because... Uh, Claudius did not like the problems and the riots that were going on in Rome because the Jews were disturbed by the converted Jews, the Christians, and it was a constant battle, and so Claudius finally had it and said, everybody who's a Jew, get out of Rome. I don't care where else you go, I don't want you here. You're a problem. Uh, Aquila and Priscilla, being converted Jews, Christians, uh, landed in Corinth. And there, Paul made an acquaintance with them, a friendship with them, a bond formed with them. They just happened to be tent makers. Paul was a tent maker. They have something in common. And they happened to be very uh, well-developed Christians. And that really excited Paul. Insomuch that when Paul finally decided he was going to leave Corinth and go across the Mediterranean and, and... Uh, assume his third missionary journey he somehow and we kind of missed this we have to assume it but somehow he talked to Aquila and Priscilla who had just been displaced from Rome and landed in Corinth and he says hey why don't you come with me pack up and move and lo and behold they did and I the more I ponder that the more impressed I am with Aquila and Priscilla They had barely put their roots down. They had lost their home to begin with and barely put their roots down in Corinth and seemed to be happy there. And Paul just says, come and go with me. And they sold out again. Don't know if they bought a home or rented a home or what, but how many of you have ever moved and know how hard it is to pack? Ann and I, I don't know how many times we moved. We counted up one time, and it was, I don't know, six, seven, eight times we had moved in just a short amount of years. And it got to where? We had stuff packed in boxes that we never took out. 
because we were just going to move again, just leave them in the boxes, put them in the garage. Now, I'm sure that Aquila and Priscilla didn't accumulate garbage like we do. But nevertheless, it's a big deal to move. Uh, some people have said psychologically, uh, moving is, is like uh, one of the top two or three stressful things that people do in their lifetime. Number one is like uh, losing a loved one. But like number two or number three is moving. Yeah, that's how big a stress that is. Yet they were willing to follow God and join with Paul and do whatever it took to be of service to him. I admire the spirit of Priscilla and Aquila because I think if we were to ask ourselves today, are you willing to sell your house and move to a place that you've never lived before and start all over because somebody suggests to you that I think we can use you in the ministry, would you do that? You know, we get so settled in our American culture. We get our house, we're striving to get it paid for, we make, we make friends, we get a home church, we have a job, and it's really difficult for us in our culture to fathom just selling it all and going. But if somebody doesn't do that, where are the missionaries going to come from? Where are the pastors going to come from? Where are the disciples going to come from? Doesn't mean everybody has to do that. It would be chaotic in the church if everybody sold and moved every two years. We need some stable people, but we do need people who are willing to obey God and follow him and take a risk in their life. That's the reason I'm fascinated by this couple. It speaks highly of their maturity, their character, the extent of their obedience, their commitment to the cause, and Paul saw that in them. So if we could do a character sketch of Aquila and Priscilla, we'd probably talk about this really sweet, neat couple. Both of them who love God deeply and devotedly, and they are so loving and so welcoming. They open their home to anybody. They open their home to complete strangers. They treat those people like family. They're hardworking. They're not rich, but they do make a living. And whatever they make, they share generously. We talk about a couple who are honest and giving. We can say like we do in our day and age, they give you a shirt off their back. We, we talk about a couple whose spiritual priorities are so right that they would pack up and move at a moment's notice just to be obedient to the Lord. We don't meet many Aquilas and Priscillas in these days who stay flexible enough in their lifestyle to follow God wherever he calls them. I have a suspicion that throughout my years of ministry, there have been people in my congregation who have thought in the back of their mind that they would be a, they have a vision. Maybe I would be a missionary. Maybe I would go to another country. Maybe I would sell out all, whatever it takes to do that. But they never really did it. They just thought it would be, yeah, I think I could see myself doing that. But maybe due to all of the connections they had and circumstances, they never really released and did it. I think it would be fair to say there are people who have just not quite 
sold out enough to God to be willing to do whatever he said and go wherever he went. But we are missing people from the ministry because we have not made ourselves available. Maybe we've settled in and our prayer has always been, God, I'll do anything for you. Just don't ask me to go anyplace different. You know, don't call me to Africa. Don't call me away from Davenport. Don't call me away from my neighborhood. Anything else. And we've set parameters for God. Thank God there are some people who remain flexible enough that they say, wherever you lead me, whatever you want, I'll do it for you. Now that's enough about Aquila and Priscilla because I want to move on to more of the meat of my sermon. I find something else in this little passage I just read you that I'm going to spend a little more time on than you might anticipate. And that is that Paul went to Sincrea and he made a vow and he shaved his head. And it's easy just to pass over that and say, well, isn't that interesting? But I have a little more to say about that. Because even though it seems to be just a brief side note, I'm fascinated that Paul would do this. We seem to want to know the significance. It leaves us a little bit baffled. What does that mean? Why did he do that? And furthermore, what might it mean? What should it mean to me that Paul did that. Undoubtedly, God had pulled Paul through one of the deepest moments of discouragement as a missionary when he went to Corinth. And we talked about that last week. He went to Corinth and, you know, he, th this was the point whenever Paul had said, I've had enough. You Jews are, are rejecting my message. I can't do anything with you. I've, your blood be on your own heads. I'm going to go to the Gentiles. It was a point of deep discouragement and a turning of direction for Paul. That's whenever God really blessed Paul that he was able to have a successful and continued long-term ministry in Corinth. Now, could it be... The fact that God had ministered that kind of comfort and peace and assurance and verification for Paul's ministry that he decided to shave his head. We don't know. It's speculation. But he made a vow and he shaved his head because it, in that culture it would have been understandable, comprehensible for somebody to do something physical to indicate I've made a vow and this is my outward testimony of that vow. So he shaved his head. And if anybody would ask why he had shaved it, he said, because I want everybody to know that I have made a vow to God. Now, sometimes we make vows to God, and we don't want anybody to know, because if we want to break it, it's just between you and God. You don't want to endure the ridicule of anybody else that said, I thought you promised God. So it's our little secret but Paul made a public statement, I have made a vow to God. Now, do the rest of us have to shave our head and make a vow to God? No. But you know, vows are funny things. I'm going to talk about vows for just a few minutes. And I'll preface that by saying this. Vows can be ridiculous and things that become almost idolatrous. Vows can be good things. It can go any of a number of directions. And I want to try and cover all of those for just a few minutes. It won't take long. But Paul was inspired by something to make some kind of a vow to God with a visible sign to testify that he had done that. And we are not so removed from making vows that we don't understand 
something about vows. In recent years, somewhat recent years, it became popular in Christian circles for a young girl to wear a purity ring. It was something that a father would give to his daughter and it would be a vow that she would make, that she would wear this purity ring. It's kind of like shaving the head. I've got something, ask me about it. And a girl would wear a purity ring and the purity ring would indicate, I have made a promise that I will save myself for the person I marry. That was a vow. The ring was a, a, an outward testimony. Now at that point, can we pause and say, why didn't, they, why didn't the boys make a purity vow? Are we being uh, gender specific here? Well, I, I think the boys very much as well needed to make a commitment. They would save themselves. Nevertheless, I digress. Let's get back to the vow, okay? I don't think that's such a bad idea. I think when you put a symbol out there and you make that vow, it makes you a little more accountable to it, doesn't it? And young lady, if you're going to wear that ring and you're going to vow, you're going to save yourself and you're going to make a testimony out of it, then you've got a lot of people watching you. That's not so bad, especially when what you're trying to do is a... a, 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 a an honorable thing. And I would say that young men making a similar promise in the presence of people. So we understand vows, right? And you know what we do at weddings? We exchange rings at weddings. This ring is an eternal circle. It's unbroken. Like your vows need to be. It's a symbol of purity. And they place their rings on their fingers and they say vows and I take them through certain vows do you take this woman to be your lawfully wedded wife to have and to hold from this day forward in sickness and health for richer for poorer you know and and they take these vows and, and we cover the whole gambit if it goes south, are you taking this vow to be, commit yourself to be faithful? And I don't know how people can say these vows and then forget about them. Because a vow is very important. It's supposed to be, otherwise it's meaningless. You take a vow, you put a ring on your finger. So we understand somewhat in our, in our uh, culture what vows are all about. Now, first of all, let me say this about vows. There are some vows that are not based on any exchanged benefit. There are many vows that I'm going to do the right and proper thing. When we get saved, we should probably look at our conversion as a moment of vowing to serve God and live according to his rules instead of living by our own rules or by the world's rules. Now, maybe I'm, maybe I'm just assuming a lot of things here. But to me, that's what getting saved is all about. It's say, thank you, God, for forgiving me of my sins, and I now vow myself to, to uh, live for you. I am deeply disturbed by the cheap salvation that is being peddled in this day and age. 
And thanks to our shrunken world where you can see what's going on in everybody's life through social media and, and through television and, and this, the, people don't have private lives much anymore. It, the whole world comes down to our computer in our living room. So you get all kinds, we're bombarded with information and things about people that we never otherwise would have known if we were living like we lived 100 years ago. Now, the reason this is important in making this point is because we have a cheap brand of salvation out there that is being peddled by a lot of very popular, important people. We hear people bearing witness and saying, I am a Christian. Even in the sports world, we got people saying, I am a Christian. We see sports figures kneeling on the field and praying. We see them having prayer in the locker room. We see them bearing witness and testimony to God and thanking him for their successes. We also see the kind of lifestyle that they live that doesn't add up to you're calling yourself a Christian, but you're not acting like Christ. The language, the things they do, the, 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 the drunkenness, they, I mean, it, it, this is not what salvation is all about. And you see it in the political world. People making confessions of faith. I am a Christian, but they have a filthy mouth and they have a, a rotten lifestyle and they have a live-in partner. And they, This is not what salvation is all about. I'm, I'm convinced salvation is about coming to God, making a commitment to him, grateful for forgiving your sins, giving you a home in heaven, and then do, doing everything in your power to live like God wants you to live. It's a life, therefore, of discipline, ongoing discipline. That's what salvation is all about. We don't see a lot of that. It's a cheap salvation that is being peddled that a lot of people are buying into that all it is, it's, it's a membership in heaven, so to speak. An irrevocable irrevo membership. Just sign up and you're going. Then go and do whatever you want. That is not salvation. We should be making vows. Now, some vows, as I said, are just merely vows to do the right and proper thing. I've made a vow to my wife. I'm not going to cheat on her. I'm going to give myself to her and her only. I made a vow to my wife. I'm going to love her until death do us part. I'm going to love her no matter how difficult life gets for us. I, that's a vow I made. That's a promise I made. And I have to be good to that promise even when it gets difficult to do that. And it does. She's made the same vow to me and I'm glad she has because I'm going to hold her to it. I don't care how mad you are at me. You promised you would love me. It's very comforting to know we've made that vow. Here's a very personal and private moment I will share with you. I was even hesitant whether to share it, but I, I, I'm getting to the point where I don't care anymore. <laughs> I've taken a personal vow in my life never to drink alcohol. I've never drank alcohol. I've never tasted out of curiosity alcohol. You know why? Because I made a vow when I was young. And I know, I know for a fact that there are some people who would 
question or argue that point and say, what's the big deal? I'll tell you what the big deal is. I made a vow. That's the big deal. And, and you can argue whether it's right or wrong or sinful or not sinful and one drink won't hurt you and who cares? And the Bible doesn't talk about just drinking. It's just dry. You can talk about all you want. I'm telling you, I made a vow. And I'm going to stick to that vow. And if you slip me a Mickey, that didn't count. Because I'm talking about what I am willingly, knowingly going to do. Why? Because that's what I wanted to do, to dedicate myself to God, to say I'm going to set a standard in my life that I will not retract from because it's unnecessary for me to do that. And I feel it makes a better witness and testimony. I feel it makes a better example for me as a parent than it does to tell my children. Now, there's certain things, kids, that we do and certain things we don't do and certain things we only do when we get older and certain things that you've got to kind of watch out and just don't let it get out of hand. I say, I don't like that kind of sloppy parenting. I'm kind of a black and white person. That's my fault, I guess. But we, in our family, I can say, we don't do this. Well, why, Dad? Well, you know, I can give you reasons. There's why we don't do this. It's not wise. It's not the kind of thing that I recommend will make a better person out of you. You've got to take a stand in your life. Now, maybe some of you have, are, are way beyond that point, and you can't start your vow because, uh, at least on that subject, because, it, uh, hey, it's too late. That's not the point I'm trying to make. The point I'm trying to make is, have you made any vows to God? That's the question I'm asking. Here you are, how many years have you been a Christian? Have you made any vows to God? I mean, vows beyond the commandments of Scripture that says, thou shalt not. That ought to be a no-brainer. The vow ought to be, I'm going to live according to your word. That's a, that's a no-brainer. But have you made any other vows to God? You say, well, you don't have to live by any vows. You know what? When you love God, when you appreciate what he's done for you, you can get to the position where you say, God, because of what you've done for me, I'm going to make a vow to you. And I think we could benefit from making a vow to God. And it doesn't make any difference if anybody understands it or not. You're doing that because it is an expression of gratitude to God that you think my life is no worse for sacrificing this. I've made several vows to God that I don't, I don't expect everybody else is going to make those kind of vows. I've made vows to God that I'm not going to do these things, God. I don't care how culture changes, not me, period. And I want to honor God with that in my life. Now, there are, there are conditional vows. Those are the vows where we challenge God to make the first move and we make the second. God, if you will, then I will. Somewhere along my life, I can't tell you the time or the day, but somewhere along the life, I'm quite certain that I have told God, if you give me a million dollars, I will be very generous with that money. I will bless my church. I will bless others. I will feed the poor. I've, I've told God something like that somewhere. And matter of fact, I'll probably try it again before life is over. It's one of those conditional vows. If you do this, God, I promise you, therefore, I will do that. God, if you heal me, I promise you I will 
get in and serve you like I've never served you before. You know, when we get sick, we get desperate. When we get deathly sick, we really start thinking about vows, negotiations to get us out of this sickness. Get me off this sick bed. God, I'm dying. If you raise me back to life, I promise you, I will. I wonder how many times we break those vows. And then there are responsive vows, and that is because God has blessed us so abundantly, we vow to love and serve him for the rest of our lives. Vows made out of gratitude are honorable. And that's kind of the vow that Paul was, God, God had done something in Paul's life, and, God, and, and Paul made a commitment, a vow. And he even referred to himself and to Christians as bondservants. You know what bondservant is? It's a commitment as a result of, of devoting yourself to somebody. A bondservant is not somebody who's been bought and paid for. A bondservant is somebody, like let's, let's make an example here, that has been set free. But because of the mercy and the grace and the kindness of the master, the servant turns around and says, I am going to attach myself to you and I'm going to be your servant for the rest of, your life, of my life because that's how much I love you and appreciate you. So that's a, that's a vow as a response to something that has been done, a commitment has been made. I ask you again, can you name one vow you have made to God based on your gratitude for his saving grace? Because if you haven't, I, I, I mean, if, if, if you don't, if you haven't shown any appreciation to God by saying, God, I'm going to commit myself to this just because I want that as a constant reminder in my life that I owe you and I love you. And without those kind of things to guide us personally, uh, it's kind of, we're kind of freewheeling in our salvation, aren't we? We're just, yeah, I'm saved, but I'm going to do, go do whatever I want. I have to remind myself constantly of vows I've made to God. I don't do that because I promised God I wouldn't. And I, I admire that. I was talking with uh, a man the other day who was admired his father so much. And his father has passed on now, but he said he never met a man like his father in all of his life. He said he was such a godly man. And while he was dying with cancer, and the family tried to get the father to take medication, painkillers, he said no. He said, we're intended, this body suffers. God intended us to suffer. He didn't want us to numb this stuff. He want, now, that was his conviction. I'm not trying to tell you that's wrong. When I hurt, bring me the aspirins. See, I don't, I, don't, I don't see it like this. But he did, and in his dying moment, going through the ravaging pain of cancer, it didn't feel to him like he pleased God in his life to do that. So he went through it. Cold turkey, I guess they would call it. I don't know what. The, he went through it. He bore it all because he knew Jesus had bore it all for him, and that's what he wanted to do for God. I got to admire that. What have you vowed for God? And don't let the enemy say, oh, it's unnecessary. You don't have to do that garbage. You might vow something that nobody else finds any value in, but you do, and God does. And the final observation to keep a balance on this is vows can become an idol, overshadowing the importance of having a right relationship with God. 
I, I met a man working in construction when I was in Alabama. He knew I was a preacher. I knew he wasn't even a Christian. I could tell by the way he lived his life, by his walk, his talk, his conduct. Concrete worker. He was pouring foundations next to the houses that I was building. And uh, he, he wanted to come over and, and talk Christianese with me. He said, I don't go to church. But he said, I, I made a vow years ago. I was always going to pay my tithe. Well, the first thing I thought is, how can I get this guy in my church? But <laughs> when I got past that, I thought, how strange that the vow almost has become an idol. He's more determined to be obedient in his tithes than he is to be obedient in his life. And that didn't get you anywhere. So that's, that's the final point I'm making is your vow can't become an idol to you. That can't become your point of thinking that makes you right with God or buys favor with God. It's ludicrous to hold religiously to a vow uh, uh, of celibacy or a vow of poverty but then end up to be found guilty of being a child molester. That's ridiculous. You're faithful to your vows, but you live like, a, like an animal. And the, the vow of selective personal sacrifice is meaningless unless you're willing to be a living sacrifice for God. Paul said, I strike a blow to my body, and I make it my slave. So after I've preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. So that's all I've got to say about vows. The good and the bad and the ugly of vows. My last uh, theme, which will be the last two points, and I'll cover it quickly, and that is discipling disciples. Meanwhile, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus, and he was a learned man with a thorough knowledge of the Scriptures. He'd been instructed in the way of the Lord. He spoke with great fervor and taught about Jesus accurately, but he only knew the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue. And when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they invited him to their home and explained to him the way of God more adequately. So Aquila and Priscilla, here's where they come into play. Thank God they left Corinth because Paul came over and he left them as he went out on his third missionary journey. And Apollos comes into town. Now, Apollos is a, he, he's an amazing, impressive man. He can talk. He can preach. He's persuasive. He's powerful. He's intelligent. He's an Old Testament scholar. Let's just get right to it. He is an Old Testament scholar. And he, he, he's perfectly uh, equipped to go in and debate with the Jews because he knows the, the Scripture as good as any of them and better than most. But he's a believer in Jesus. So he ties the Old Testament to the Messiah. And he goes in and he's convincing. But Apollos has a weak point. And that he's hung up on the baptism of John. He doesn't quite get the whole thing. So Aquila and Priscilla who understand more about this. Take Apollos in and say may we disciple you. And the interesting thing is. As, as skilled and eloquent and powerful as Apollos was. He says yes. Teach me. He didn't come on with an attitude. I already know everything I need to know about this. Thank you very much. But he submitted himself to this Christian couple and they worked with him and they explained some things and they ironed out some wrinkles and when he came out after having been advanced discipleship course he came out of them he was a piece of dynamite 
I mean, he went in and he made converts and so much and so powerful that whenever Paul wrote to the Corinthian church, he said, now you've got a problem. He said, some of you have centered around and said, Apollos, he is the best. And the others are arguing and saying, no, 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 Paul's the best. And he said, you've become so carnal in trying to choose who's the best. Well, no wonder they were uh, uh, even having that as an issue because Apollos got a lot of people saved. And Paul got a lot of people saved. And then they started adopting their favorite and arguing about who was better. That's how good Apollos was because he allowed himself to be discipled. Because Aquila and Priscilla were obedient. Because they were able to do this work while Paul was off doing another work. Because he had duplicated himself. Because he had increased his ministry. Because he got more people involved. Because he couldn't do it all. And Aquila and Priscilla being there at the time Apollos comes and, and discipling him and him becoming a major soul winner. We would call it today, that was a God thing. That was a divine appointment that happened. Notice how quickly this narrative moves. We're not given a fair perspective of how long it took for Aquila and Priscilla to disciple Apollos. It must have been a fair and reasonable amount of time. I don't think they had coffee one time. And then he went away. I think they really spent some time. But the next verse has Apollos traveling to Achaia, which happens to be right back over in Corinth where they came from. And he must have heard Aquila and Priscilla talk about how Christianity was taking root over. He said, man, I want to go. So they wrote a letter and sent him with him, sent it with him to the Christians. So they said, you can trust this guy. So he heads back over to Greece, one of the territories of Greece. And he picks up where Aquila and Priscilla and Paul left off and became a spiritual father to who knows how many hundreds because Apollos had been discipled. It was not only Apollos, but after leaving Aquila and Priscilla at Ephesus, Paul made his third missionary journey through Galatia, Phrygia, returned to Ephesus, where he'd have the opportunity to stay in Ephesus for three years, and he had a significant impact on the city there because the, the, the book of Ephesians was written to the church at Ephesus, and if you read Paul's epistles, Ephesus, the, the letter to the Ephesians is one of the letters where he doesn't have any rebuke, any reproof. He just praises them for how great a church they have. It's one of those few epistles that he just wrote to tell them, and congratulate them. Hey, you guys are doing great. Keep it up. So they had great success at Ephesus. At the time of him writing the letter, they had a healthy and functional church. You find the Ephesian church again in the book of Revelation where they began to struggle and he had to, had to write the message from Jesus to the Ephesian church because they need to get some things in order. But nevertheless, it was a good, strong work. And upon his return to Ephesus, one of the first significant encounters Paul had was this group of interesting religious people that are described as being disciples of John. Now this is, this is fascinating because John came as a forerunner of Jesus. John 
pointed to Jesus. John didn't want a following. John wanted Jesus to have a following. But somebody got distracted and focused on John and became his disciples. When he was trying to point some to Jesus, they didn't see Jesus. They saw John. So they got this little band of people still running around, Johnites or whatever you know, whatever they are, and they're fascinated by his ministry. They're fascinated by his baptism. Their whole religion is built around the ministry of John. And Paul runs into them. They're, they're probably good people because John was a good a person. And Paul asks them a simple question because he recognizes these people need some development. They need some discipling. So he starts off with this opening question. Tell me, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And their answer was all Paul needed to know. We haven't even heard that there was such a thing as the Holy Spirit. Paul says, I know where to start now. We're not even sure they were saved. I mean, by the way, the narrative, it says when you believe, but we wonder what the implications of believing are because he got them baptized the right way. John's baptism was under repentance, and it's a good thing. You know, they, they was, it, baptism was a common thing in Judaism. They would be baptized for different purposes, but never baptized into Jesus because he had not yet come. But baptized as a signification of repentance from their sins, and they had done a good and a noble thing, but they didn't go far enough. He said, now I want to tell you about being baptized in the name of Jesus. And they did that. And how, how can you really be saved if you have not yet come to a saving knowledge of Jesus. So the, the, the passage leaves some question about religiously, where were they? So he went over, they said, we didn't even hear there was a Holy Spirit. Well, they probably didn't even know about the significance of being baptized in, in, into Jesus and following him. They were following John, following the wrong person. So Paul laid his hands on them. He baptized them in the name of Jesus. He laid their hands on them. They got filled with the Holy Spirit. First of all, Compare the two occasions where believers were in need of discipling. Apollos and the disciples of John. Both were believers to some degree. They evidently were earnest seekers and open to truth. Both needed more than what they had. You see, we talk about discipleship. And I open my sermon talking about discipleship. And I close my sermon talking about discipleship. It comes from here. Discipleship is so important to me. And it's not just discipling new believers. I've given you two prime examples of believers that still needed discipleship. And I have, in my ministry, had some people that had a bit of a chip on their shoulder. When they would come in to the church, want to be members, and perhaps in that particular instance, I would say, very good. Glad you're interested in membership. I want you to come take my membership class. And we would go through some things in membership class. And I've had some people with a chip on my shoulder that didn't want to take it. We, that's, that's child stuff. We don't need that. But I'm telling you, by the comments they made, by the things that I saw them, say, uh, saw them do and heard them say, they needed it. I'm telling you, as a man, a minister, a pastor, a minister of God, they needed it and they didn't even know they needed it. And make some of the most outrageous, outlandish comments and talk about their ministry. They didn't have a ministry. They had a delusion. I'm telling you. I'm letting you own things that I know that I don't share with just everybody. Just you because I like you. 
Not everybody who needs discipleship wants to be discipled. You have to be humble like Apollos. Be humble like the disciples of John. You have to realize, maybe I can benefit from this. Maybe I can actually learn something I don't already know. I humorously put a little post on one of my ministers groups this past week. And I said, it is a great priceless benefit to any pastor to be humble and teachable and preferably under a mentor for at least the first 41 years of ministry. I said, next year will be my 42nd year. I'll let you know if I finally know it all. <laughs> I got a lot of chuckles from that one as people said, well, I've been in at 56 and I haven't learned it all yet. So I, I, I did that because we got a lot of young ministers on there who've been pastoring for two or three years. They know everything. They don't, but they think they do. And even we as Christians, we don't know it all. Discipleship can be very beneficial to us. All of us still need to be discipled. No matter what level you're at, you can go to another level. And you should go to another level. So I'm asking you with a pastor's heart, are you interested in going to the next level? Or are you just going to stay where you are until you die? That's what I want to know. Are you hungry to be discipled to the next level? You know, you go to college, you got English 1, English 2, English 3, you know. You got Christianity 1, Christianity 2, Christianity 3, Christianity 4, Christianity 5. How far you want to go? You don't know it all yet. Do you want to advance? Do you want to learn? Do you want to just spend the rest of your life pretending like you know it all? That's the question. Not only is discipleship, not only for the newly saved, it's for everybody to step up their game. The second point is, you can't not ignore the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit in the life of believers as being an important factor to Paul. He's not only concerned about them believing in Jesus, but have you been empowered by the Holy Spirit? We've preached on it and taught it, and we continue to promote it. We don't always see the results when we give altar calls. I can give an altar call. I can say, if you want to be baptized in the Holy Spirit, come up here and pray. They don't always get baptized in the Holy Spirit. I wish it was as easy. I've seen it at times in my life. Whenever a, a young man in my evangelistic ministry came up for bapt bat being baptized in the Holy Spirit, he got filled immediately. And the pastor came and said, we've been praying for years. And he's baptized right there. And another one that, uh, it, I think it was in the same meeting, he came up and, got, and, and we prayed for him to get the baptism of the Holy Spirit. He did not receive then, but he came back later and told me. He said, I went home and I continued to seek God and continued to pray. And he said, you'll never believe it. I was out in my garage working on my lawnmower and I got baptized in the Holy Spirit. He can do it anywhere. I don't know why sometimes it happens immediately and why sometimes it doesn't. I can't explain that to you. All I can tell you is it's a priceless, a valuable thing to be empowered by the Holy Spirit as a believer. I can tell you that. I can tell you it's important enough that we ought to continue to seek to be empowered by the Holy Spirit, baptized in the Holy Spirit. I can tell you we ought to continue to want to be filled on an ongoing basis constantly filled with the Holy Spirit. I can tell you that. And I can tell you this. We don't seek a gift. We seek the giver. And it's just that simple. 
And furthermore, if we covet this fresh infilling of the Holy Spirit, if we know we need the Holy Spirit in our Christian walk today as much as Paul needed the Holy Spirit in his day, if we know that it's more than just a strong confession of faith, but a fresh infilling, it can transform our church. It can transform you. Let's be sensitive to that and seek that in our time of worship. Let's seek that in our time of personal prayer. When the worship team is up here and they are leading us in our worship and you don't know what else to do, why not seek a closer walk with God and a deeper experience in the Holy Spirit? Why not use that time during the entire worship? Holy Spirit, fill me. Fill this place. Fill these people. Refresh me. Renew me. What a perfect time to do that. Let our, our desire and our heart be reaching out to more of God. Disciple us, Lord. Fill us, Lord. Worship team, would you come?